What a sweet spirit is here this morning. Anybody else just feeling that? I just feel the Lord has um, has got my heart um, in a very tender place this morning. I, f- I feel like you've joined me in that. So uh, thank the Lord for his presence and work and activity with us this morning. Hmm. We're in Acts 15 today. And uh, let me start with this question. How do you win? How do you win? Uh, my wife Lisa and I live in East Town, and right now, for some reason, if it's like after 5 o'clock in the morning till about 10, there's like people out jogging every, uh, every morning or biking or running or, or something. It, it seems they're, they're, I think they're preparing for some sort of race. I know my friend Charity Tagus is preparing for a half marathon how do you win a race like one of these? This, by the way, is not mine. This is my wife's. You'll be surprised to know. So how do you win? How do you win in anything? How do you win friends and influence people? How do you win at Monopoly? How do you win the lottery? How, that one's a bad example. How do you win? How do you win? What do you do? Well, Thinking about it, I kind of came up with four really generic steps now to win. First, you have to recognize the requirements of what's being asked. So you, you better know what 26 miles is before you, you better know what that is. You better recognize the requirements if you want to win. Or you better understand, like if you're going to win in chess, you better understand how the pieces move and you better understand what checkmate is. If you want to win, you better understand. And secondly, you've got to register you got to register for the race. If you don't have one of these, you, you can't win the Fifth Third Bank River Bank run without one of these. You have to register. If you don't register, you, you can't win, right? Third, you got to give maximum effort. You got to be all that you can be. You got to just do it. You got to expend yourself. I get exhausted watching those Gatorade commercials. Those people are just working so hard. I just sit there. I'm like, wow. I think I need one of those recoveries at the end of the commercial. You got to expend yourself completely. And then fourthly, you got to surpass all the other competitors. That's what winning means. You got to, you know, in a long jump, you got to jump further than everybody else. In a um, race, you got to achieve a faster pace and maintain it longer than anybody else. In figure skating, you have to... Um, you know. <laughs> you have to achieve artistic merit and, and execute your double lutzes. I'm, that's the only words I know. You have to do it better. You have to exceed everybody, all the other competitors in order to win. That's what it takes to win. Question, what does it take to win with God? What does it take to win with God? Today's topic is the main focus of today's text, Acts 15. Acts 15. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and um, you will need a copy of the Bible in front of you to survive the next little bit, okay? Um, We're walking verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're in Acts 15 today. Um, So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, do we have any of those navy blue copies back there? We have one copy. Uh, Wow. And those people last week were... We should put the thou shalt not steal sticker on the top of those, shouldn't we? Okay, so um, snuggle up next to a person who has a Bible. Uh, Bible is um, Crossroads middle name, okay? So here we are. Let's stand, please, in expectation of what God is going to say to us. This is Acts 15. I'm going to preach all the way through verse 35, but for right now, I'll read through verse 6. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Let's pray. Almighty God, our hearts are open to you. Our desires are known by you. Um, We have no secrets that you don't completely know. And we pray that through your spirit and with your word, you would come cleanse us. Help us to understand what you're speaking to us in your word. Help us to open our eyes, give us eyes of faith to see it, to discern the spiritual nature of these words. Give us hearts that are tender and soft to react to them appropriately and give us lives that can be transformed, God, by encountering you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Winning with God. Today's text, we're in narrative, right? So the book of Acts is story time. So there's four scenes in the story. Four scenes in the story. It starts um, in verse, scene one is, um, starts in verse one and goes through verse three. Um, any, anybody excited for NFL football coming? Okay. And all God's people said, mm. that was pretty, that was pretty great. So if you, if you uh, hate football, then um, um, I'm really sorry. But today's passage kind of comes to us like a, like a football afternoon, okay? Here's, here it is in a football afternoon. Verses 1 through 3 is scene 1. It's the pregame show. The pregame show is where people get together and they discuss the two teams they're going to be playing. They talk about the, the main key matchups. And then at the end of the show, they make a prediction about who's going to win. Amazingly, those predictions are never followed up on later. Um, but, but that's what it is. And this is what Luke does for us, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, let's just walk through it carefully here. But some men came down from Judea. Okay, so some big city guys are coming to set things straight. From chapter 11, verse 2, this is the same group that opposed Peter for eating with uncircumcised people. And they were teaching the brothers, continuing in the text, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, circumcision is the beginning of a life devoted to keeping the law of Moses, all right? This is in Exodus 12, verse 44 to 49. This is pinning on your race number. Did I lose it already? This is pinning on your race number. That's what circumcision is in this text. It's saying, I'm going to live my life according to this. You probably shouldn't do this for the very first time in front of a group of people. I'm not going to pin this on me. But this is what, that's, that's what circumcision is. In, in the Jewish law, it is saying, I'm going to play by those rules. I am entering that contest. That's what it is. It's this number. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, unless you put on the number, unless you uh, become circumcised, you can't be saved. Gentiles could convert to Judaism and share in the blessings promised to Israel, but you had to play according to the rules to do it according to the Old Testament, or so these people thought. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, okay, so this is not some little local squabble, this isn't like a little matter of opinion, this is a big deal. This is about the nature of salvation, so the gloves come off, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Is it because Jerusalem is the head church? Is it because Jerusalem is where the troublemakers came from? I don't know. I'm not sure. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Okay, so this is the pregame. This is where the prediction is. Who does Luke side with here? Have you noticed? Just like, look, verses 1 through 3. Look who Luke says. So here, here it is. He, he tips his hand. You know what Luke thinks right now. So Paul and Barnabas, 
tell all of the brothers, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brings joy to all the brothers. Yeah, he, you know what side Luke is here. He's, he's referencing a little bit here Habakkuk 1.5, which says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God said to his people in Habakkuk 1.5. So that's scene one, the pregame show. That brings us to scene two, which begins in verse four and continues through verse 21. This is the game. This is the showdown. There's a lot of back and forth going on here, and it's going to require a little bit of thinking to track with me, okay? But it's important because we don't want to study verses in the Bible by themselves. I was on a church's website um, a couple years ago, looking at their worship ministry, and they had this banner. And the verse on their banner, their ministry's theme verse, was Matthew 4 9, which says, it was like the banner was like this beautiful picture of, of nature, and the verse across it in like, you know, papyrus font to describe how beautiful it was. I'm glad to see there's some papyrus font lovers. Maybe your name was papyrus, I wasn't sure. All of these things, this is the verse, Matthew 4, 9, written across it. All of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Okay, that's what Satan said to Jesus, okay? That is not a theme verse for a worship ministry. I sent, I like, hey, um, hey webmaster, you should know right now, like this is, you know, and somebody's like, well, there's lots of different ways to interpret the Bible. I got back, I was like... Okay, that one's on you then, so I, I tried, I tried. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's not, so we have to study verses in context, agreed? Else we embrace the words of Satan. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So this is the game, we're in the first quarter. All right, first quarter lasts verse 4 and 5. It's the Judaizers' assertion. Verse 5, um, they declared all that God had done with them, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Yes, you got that right. Believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. These are Pharisee Christians. Did, did that surprise you? That surprised me this week. I thought for sure, well, these are the Jewish leaders that are in there trying to poison things. No, these are believers. These are believers, and they, oh, come here, page three, where'd you go? They say, um, um, they're merely trying, okay, where did it go? That is a little embarrassing. I'm good now. This is from the party of the Pharisees. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you name things party that aren't really that fun? <laughs> Communist. Communist Party, not actually, it's not like Mao with, you know, like some friends in a barbecue. It's, it's the Communist Party. You're just trying to, like, help it out. So the, par- the party of the Pharisees, not really a party. Not really a party. They rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. End of quarter one, the, the Pharisee Party, not really a party, has made their point. Second quarter begins, verse 6. It's Peter's turn, second quarter. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know, like this is common knowledge, that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember, that was back in chapter 10, verse 34. I'm putting that part in. And God, who knows the heart, God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. That was Acts 10 verse 44. And he made, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God cleansed them. So who's at work here according to, according to Peter? Who's doing all this activity? Okay, I'll, this is the part of the sermon where you help. Um, verse 7, it says... Somebody made a choice. And verse 8 says, somebody bore witness, and somebody gave the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, somebody made no distinction, and somebody cleansed their hearts by faith. Who's at work in this? God. That's right. Thank you. Look, God's at work. Peter's saying, look, we're not 
deciding anything today. We're not determining what happened. Here's what we're doing. We're talking about God has already done something, and now we're trying to recognize and label and understand what God has done. The church isn't doing anything. The church isn't making Gentiles Christians on this fine morning. It is trying to figure out, wait, God is at work. Let's figure out what he is up to. What is he doing? And let's understand it. That's what the church is trying to do. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Them's fighting words. Why are you putting God to the test? Is Putting God to the test is why the Israelites who came out of the Exodus couldn't go into the promised land because they put God to the test. When Satan came to Jesus during the portion of scripture that a local church, not a local church, named their worship ministry after, God said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So when Peter says, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Ouch. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. Look, a a yoke is a picture of restraint or control. Jesus condemned the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for not helping on, on the neck of the disciples, notice that Peter just says, look, the Gentiles are disciples. Why are you putting this yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Ah, oh, what a great verse. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter agrees with Paul. Paul said back in chapter 13, verse 38, he's preaching and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Peter disputes the need to obey the law in order to be saved. Peter says, you do not need to obey the law in order to be saved. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay, after the second quarter comes halftime, verse 12. All the assembly fell silent. They got chips, nachos, maybe not. Beginning of the third quarter. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Okay, Barnabas and Paul are not key contributors in this debate because they're sort of one of the sides. The Judaizers are accusing them of minimizing circumcision. And Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, signs and wonders are used to establish um, major moments in salvation history. Signs and wonders were used when the Israelite people left Egypt. And so they're showing how this is This is pointing to the new inclusion of the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas run quarter three, and then fourth quarter, all of the high schoolers are over on the side going, fourth quarter, this is our quarter. Nobody's been to a high school football game. Okay, good, no problem. It's James's turn. Fourth quarter is James's speech, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. Okay, so James has got some seniority here. He says, brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simeon, isn't that weird? It says Simeon there. Does your Bible say Simeon? Read carefully. There's an E in there. Okay, look at your footnote down at the bottom. The the Greek there is Simeon. The Greek there is Simeon. Um, The NIV just goes right with Peter to try to keep it as clear as possible. The NIV is very interested in keeping things clear for you. And it seems a little crazy. Why does he call him Simeon? Well, when you're arguing that we don't need to keep following the Jewish laws, it's not good to say the, the guy's Greek name. Does that make sense? If you're arguing that, like, rap music is not good, I'm not arguing that. But if you're arguing that, you don't want to bring in as a witness Flavor Flav. That's not credible. But if you bring in, you know, um, William Johnson, which I think is his name, I don't know. But that's more credible. So look, when Peter's making the argument, James says, our brother Simeon. Simeon, like that's, I mean, that's not just Simon. Simeon is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Like that is the official like Jewish stamp of approval. Look, our brother, our Jewish brother who loves the law, 
who loves the Lord, who knows the Torah. I mean, his name is Simeon, for crying out loud. He's related this to us. Such a a neat little twist there. How God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Unbelievable. Verse 15 and with this, the words of the prophets agree. So now James is going to get to the real juice of our passage here. He's saying that the Old Testament saw this coming. Zechariah 2.11 wrote, That many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Zechariah 2.11. But now James is going to go after this quote from Amos, which is astounding. Verse 16, after this, God says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind, oh, sorry, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay, so this is no new thing. The Old Testament prophets saw this coming. I want just to like focus our, our attention. Why did James pick Amos? What is going on here? Verse 16 says that God will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. The tent of David. What an interesting picture. Why? Tent? Tent of David? I thought the promise was to David that he would establish for him a, starts with an H. What's the word? A house. But look what, what God says. Look, I'm going to rebuild the tent of David. The tent. The tent, not a house, the tent. But he also uses the word rebuild. That's strange. Like, do you, do you build a tent or do you kind of like prop it up? So if a tent falls over, God says, I'm going to rebuild David's tent. A, a tent is just a picture of just a shelter. It's not a picture of security. I would submit to you this way. This is, hopefully will help you with the whole Old Testament, New Testament um, thing. Think of um, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Are you with me? Did anybody? Is this a new one too? The, all the people who I lost during the NFL part are now back. <laughs> What's the guy's name? Ty, um, Ty Pennington. That was really quick. Good. <laughs> okay, so you know the premise of the show. There's like a family and like, oh, Hurricane Irene like blew over. My husband's a firefighter, and we have 37 orphans that live in our two-bedroom house. Wow. And Hurricane Irene, it fell over, and now there's nowhere for our orphans to go. And so Ty and his team show up, and like, well, tell me about your house. I'm like, well, it's got two bedrooms. One's the drafty room, and the other's the soaking wet room. And there's like a staircase, there's rickety stairs that lead up to it, and they come down, and then here's the, goes into the kitchen slash dining room slash laundry room slash basement slash everything room. And Ty's like, wow. So, and they're like, so tell me, like, what, tell me about this. And they're like, well, here's what we want. We just want like a place. We want our, I, I miss my drafty room so much, says the little girl. I miss drafty room. And I, I miss wet room, says the little boys. And like, okay, and. Then they send them away. Now, does Ty and his team put back together drafty room and wet room? No, 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 no. They (laughs) bulldoze and, like, put up a whole new thing. And they come back, and the kids come back and move that bus. And, um, (laughs) wow, look at that. And they're just like, wow, I never even thought it was going to be like that. Wow. And, you know, and it's like stenciled across the top. It says, drafty room. Oh, like, that's drafty room, but there's no draft in here. It's so much better. There's a Nintendo. And the kids are screaming, okay? Use this as a picture. Use this as a picture. Fallen tent. Fallen tent is drafty room. It's wet room. But the Jewish people are like the, 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 the homeowners that had it knocked over by Irene. And God comes to them and says, you know, well, tell me, what are you looking for? Like, you know what? We just want David back. We want, the, we want David on the throne, that kingdom. We want, and God's like writing it down like, okay, good. A king like David on the throne, good. And he's like, and then like maybe, maybe we could get like Solomon. That was such a great year. 
We could get Solomon. God's like, how about one greater than Solomon? Mm, how about that? Like the, like the wisdom of Solomon? Mm-hmm. Okay, I got some ideas that we can do with that. He takes it. He doesn't just give them their dorky tent back. He gives them. He rebuilds them. He doesn't give them the tabernacle. Tabernacle tent is the same word. He doesn't give them a tabernacle. He builds them a temple. Jesus comes, and you just need to get this. Jesus is the most Israelite ever. You know, who's more Catholic than the Pope? There's, wow, nobody's more Catholic than the Pope. Who's more Israelite than Abraham? Jesus is. Who's more kingly than David? Jesus is. Who's more prophetic than Elijah? Jesus is. He is the fulfillment. He is true Israel. All of the things that Israel was trying to be in stuttering, sputtering, half, not really working ways, Jesus comes and just aces. He's so fantastic. Like the, if, if you open your eyes to this, you can see it all the time. What, remember the prophecy in Matthew, out of Israel I called my son. That's about Jesus now. Uh, astounding. When Luke tells the story about the transfiguration where Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and Luke gives us a little peek about what they're talking about. In the Bible, uh, English Bible, it translates it that uh, Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure. It's a really, that's as good a word as you're going to get in English. The, um, the Greek word there is exodus. We're talking to him about his exodus. He is the Israel, like to the nth degree, the ultimate, the perfect one. He comes and does it. Okay. Back to 19, back to our story. But just get that into your mind. Therefore, my judgment, James says, agreeing with Peter, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay, so he's rejecting the Judaizers' demand. The Gentiles are to live a life following Christ in the Spirit, not the demands of the law. Verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the things. The NIV translates that food. It's more generic than that. It means it's things, literally, there. Should abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Well, that's strange. I thought just a minute ago we didn't have to obey the law, and now we should obey these parts of it? What happened? James, we, we can't have a... This isn't youth group. Both teams can't win. <laughs> what did he do there? Okay, well, he's... he's He's doing something very good, and he's doing something very kind. He's not establishing new rules for salvation. Let me just help you. These four things, by the way, are um, spiritual defilements that come from idolatry, mostly associated with temple feasts. Um, New Testament commentator Ben Witherington says that it's a matter of venue, not menu. When a guy in a commentary rhymes like that, you got to give him credit. Ben Witherington says it's venue, not menu, okay? So these are four practices, things that are strangled. Well, that's pagan feasts and not consume blood. Well, when you uh, kill a beast by strangling it, the blood is still inside of it. So don't, the things that are associated with idolatry, that's what is being warned. These are not, these are not obligations, commitments for salvation. These are requirements, helpful Um, admonitions to help the Jewish and the Gentile believers coexist together. James is saying, look, ultimately, they're the same. Ultimately, Jews and Gentiles are now united in Christ. Ultimately, all their salvation comes from one way, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way people are saved. Ultimately, they're united. However, in a second, not quite the same way, they're different. And we need to establish some helpful parameters to help them interact well. That's what James is doing here. Scene three, the decision and the follow-through, 20, verses 22 through 29. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabas. I guess if you had the same name as the guy that betrayed Jesus, you'd probably get a nickname as well. And Silas, who's going to be a future companion of Paul, he's going to be, um, helps co-write 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. These two men, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. 
the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the church in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, which literally means may you rejoice is the greetings there. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, they're from Jerusalem, but they're not representing the church here, and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a commendation. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Confirmation. For it has seemed good, verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? Like, how can James, like, we haven't, the word spirit has not been in our entire chapter, and suddenly James is just saying the Holy Spirit's doing this? How's he, is he just like throwing some spiritual mumbo jumbo on top of it to make a, a, a letter Christian. You notice Christians do this sometimes. We take like YouTube and we make it GodTube, or we take, you know, Facebook and we make it Gracebook or Facebook. Is that really? Okay, I didn't know there was a real one. Okay, that's awful. All right, good. But sometimes like we'll just put a little like, you know, it's, it's a breath mint, but it's a, it's a testament. See how that is? See, it's Christian. <laughs> the Retzen tells you you're forgiven. It doesn't, but we sometimes we'll just do that. Is that what James is doing here? Not even close. Not even close. Look, there's four different ways the Spirit has affirmed what's going on. Peter's speech, way number, way number one, Peter's speech told how the Spirit testified to the Gentiles' salvation. So the fact that the Spirit came on the Gentiles says that they're saved. Two, Paul and Barnabas confirmed supernatural works among the Gentiles through them. So the Holy Spirit's been doing miracles among them. Second way the Spirit has testified to this. Three, James argued that the Spirit-inspired Old Testament has always seen this coming. Three, and then four, the unity of the church is one of the signs of the Spirit's presence and guidance. Four different ways that the Spirit has been at work this entire process. So the council is affirming what the Spirit has, always, has already shown to be true. Okay, back to 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Again, not conditions of salvation. These are requirements for fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers. That you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Isn't that a great little phrase? It's not, you will be saved. It is you will do well. It's an exhortation for harmony. Farewell, he writes. So fantastic. John Stott, the beloved um, evangelical leader who passed away last month, wrote in his commentary on this that it's a double victory. It's a double victory. It's a victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace, and it's a victory of love in preserving the fellowship between, with sensitive concessions to conscientious Jewish scruples. The victory of truth and a victory of love. Magnificent. All right, here's scene four. Here's the effect. This is the after party. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Remember, we learned encouragement is turning someone's attention to the presence and activity of God in their lives. That's what these men are doing. What a great, great service. Verse 33, after they had spent some time, so not just a one-week mission trip, they were there a while, they were sent off in peace. So the, the, the whole conflict has settled down by the brothers to those who had sent them. So they're going back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Amen. That's our story for today. And, and looking through it, there's some principles I want to make sure we grab. I want to make sure we don't miss them. The first thing is on theological disagreements, because this whole chapter is, at its root, a theological disagreement. It's some believers 
who are disagreeing on some things. And so the question kind of comes up, especially in our day and age, well, why should theology matter to ordinary Christians? Why should theology matter to ordinary Christians? I say theology, most people sort of glaze over like, whoa, come back to me when you have seven tips for a healthy family. Come, I'll I'll say the Trinity, and people are just kind of like, all right, that's my five-minute warning until something normal comes back to my brain, right? So why should theology matter to ordinary Christians? Reason number one, there's no such thing as ordinary Christians. There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. They're saints, okay? There's sons of the living God. There's daughters of the king. There's no such thing as ordinary Christians. Ordinary Christians is an oxymoron that, has, that will not help you. <laughs> um, um, Lisa and our, our friend Lauren are working on memorizing Romans 8, and they were reciting a couple nights ago, and it jumped out to me like brand new. If we are sons, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. That's who you are, ordinary Christian. No, saint, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Jesus is your older brother. So dispel the notion of ordinary believers. Well, I'm just a, a Christian mom. There's no just in the phrase Christian mom, okay? It's, look at that. Look at if, C.S. Lewis said that if we could see woo, some of the people that we are surrounded by. He didn't say the woo part. That was me. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said if we could see some of the people we're surrounded by, we would be tempted to worship them, okay? So just get a grasp of who we're surrounded by. There's no such thing as ordinary Christians. There's only saints. And secondly, because everybody is a theologian. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's theology. What comes into our minds, thinking about God is the most important thing about us. It's our theology. Everyone is a theologian. You're a good theologian or a not-so-good theologian. But it's, and the criteria on that, are you a biblical theologian? Or are you a, this is what it seems to me, theologian. Just like, be careful on that. So theology matters to all saints. But this will help. The church for years has divided up theology into three categories. Dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Dogma, doctrine, and opinion. We'll we'll take them in opposite order. Opinion is stuff like... um, Things that, things that aren't important. Um, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Are, are there dogs in heaven? What style of music is good for a church? Um, uh, should alcohol be um, consumed by Christians? What is a good political affiliation? Should I homeschool, Christian school, or public school my kids? These are matters of opinion. These are matters of opinion. Now, you can have some scripturally informed opinions, but we need to be careful about elevating them into, the, into realms that they don't belong in. How to handle someone with a different opinion than you. Step one, love. Step two, open your Bible. Um, smile. Listen. Appreciate. Get a, a little bored. It's, it's okay. Like if somebody, people know that I play music and they come to me and like, hey, can you believe that the... The, the music at that, that church down the street, I'm like, sorry, you're going to have to start over. I, I kind of lost you halfway through your sentence there. Just, it's okay. It's not that important. Just settle down with it. The gospel uh, um, has more power to unite us than these differences have to divide us. Christian freedom here. Let, Romans says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. Weaker brother issues are here. Move closer to them. There's a great story about um, a guy who's a Christian rapper named Voice, whose album um, was, uh, he performed a a couple of songs at John Piper's church, and some fundamentalist bloggers, um, I'm glad they have computers, I guess, but they, um, they just like tore into him that rap has no place in God's house, and how could anyone do any music like this? during a church service, and they were furious with him. And um, I'm giving you the PG version of what they wrote. I was shocked and could not read some of the quotes on there. And uh, Curtis Allen Voice wrote back, and on the blog where he was criticized, said, I'd like to thank you. 
I appreciate your desire to protect yourself and your church from what you think is ungodly. I disagree with your judgment that rap is sinful, but I hope I protect my own family the same way that you protect yours. Curtis Allen, voice. Let me just tell you, like he got some apologies on that blog pretty quickly. Just, oh, look how that just took all of the air out of that argument. Okay, secondly, doctrine. Doctrine. Now, these things are a little bit more substantial. Like, what does baptism accomplish and how should we celebrate it? What's the relationship between the nation of Israel and the church? How should we handle some of these disagreements? Love. Open your Bible. Discuss. Seriously. Listen. Discuss. Sometimes you may have to separate for, um, for, to be true to what both people feel the Lord is calling them. We're going to see in a couple of weeks when Neil preaches the end of 15 here about uh, how Paul and Barnabas were separated to, call what, to follow what God had called both of them to. But these distinctions are state borders, not national borders, okay? So like sometimes you have to, a, a church, a new church will form because God's calling this group of people to follow in this particular way. And you know, this is going to get me in trouble, but thank God for denominations, like, no offense, people, we used to kill each other over stuff like this. Denominations at least mean they're in a different building and we can pray for them and love them and not have to worry about them killing us, okay? Thank God for denominations historically. Wow. And, and don't think that the Catholic Church is completely united um, either. They have their own version of denominations that's different, but it's, they're just as fractured as the Protestant churches. But listen, like, we, like remember when... Um, when we had our memorial service for our friend uh, Derek and Dylan, there were three different churches in our area that volunteered to take care of the kids' ministry for us. Do you remember that? I love the churches in our area. I pray regularly for churches. Greg said something about it this morning. We, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're just called to serve the Lord in a different way. We love them. We cheer for them. We support them. But we're trying to do something distinct over here. Hooray for the kingdom. High fives for everybody. State border, not national border. You can drive to Ohio without a passport. It's okay. But if you're going to go to a different country, that brings us to our next thing. Dogma. Dogma is essential matters pertaining to salvation. This is talking about winning with God. Winning with God. Okay, it brings me back to my opening illustration of winning. Because um, I, love, I, I love, like, cool athletic things. And one of my favorite events is... Um, is the long jump, because like rules kind of confuse me about stuff, and the long jump's really easy on rules. <laughs> the long jump is like start at this line, I'll pick this line right here, and jump as far as you can, and whoever jumps the farthest is the winner, right? I, I can get that. Everybody like line, don't start over the line, but start behind the line and make a jump, right? Okay. Okay, that was about 75 feet. <laughs> okay, that was uh, 6 feet 10 inches, okay? 6 feet 10 inches was that le leap right there. Okay, what if I had a, a running start? How many people okay, think I could jump over 10 feet with a running start? Over 10 feet, over 12 feet, can I get 12 feet? 15, somebody give me 15, yes. Okay, 15 feet. I love that. I like, ever since I was a little kid, I like to jump. Anybody, kids, like to jump? Um, uh, state uh, champ long jump this year, uh, uh, 21 feet, 3 inches. High school state champ, 21 feet, 3 inches. Cornerstone record, cornerstone record, 23 feet, 3 inches. 23 feet, 3 inches. I don't know. That's a good question, though. I'll look that up for second service. Um, um, Greatest long jumper in um, human history is a guy named Carl Lewis. I know some of you, like, college freshmen were born in 2007, so you don't know. <laughs> it's cool. Carl Lewis won the Olympic gold medal in the long jump in four different Olympics, which happened every four years, so math majors help me out there. That's 16 years of he was the greatest long jumper. He had a streak of 11 years where he was not defeated in the long jump. He, it was 65 meets in a row. It's one of the great, like, winning streaks of all time. Do you know his longest long jump? His longest long jump. 
Becky, help me over here. Can you stand right there so people can see? His longest long jump, perfect. Uh, Tokyo 1991 World Championships, okay? His longest long jump. Sorry, that's not it. (laughs) This is the high school kid right here. Cornerstone record. Way to go, see you. In the air, flying from there to here. Wait, not done yet. This is the Beijing uh, gold medal winner here. Carl Lewis. Here. 29 feet. 29 feet, 11 and a quarter inches. 29 feet, okay? So just running top speed, jump. I'm in the air. <laughs> I'm, I'm climbing, in fact. Where's my red cape? Still, I'm starting to come down now. Not down yet. Still not down. Boom, I landed. Look at that. Look at that jump. But the crazy thing about that is, that's the longest jump of his career. He lost that day. A guy named Mike Powell, who like never jumped over 28 feet, jumped 29 feet, 11 and uh, three quarters inches on that day. He lost. Carl Lewis lost on the day he did his very best one. What's the distance between you and God? What's the distance between a person who doesn't know God and God? Here's, here's 30 feet. Anybody want to come up and make a, an attempt at breaking Carl Lewis's personal best? You need to go get your uh, track shoes before you try? Maybe, maybe train for a week? What's, what's the distance between you and God? Because here's the point. When, when we try, when we decide, okay, I see that, I see that, I'm in, I can do it, I can do it, pin the number on me, I'm going to give it my best, I'm going to make a jump here, I think I can win. Do you understand what you're trying to do? You, you can't do that. How do you win? Step one. Identify the requirement. Step two, enter the competition. Step three, maximum effort. Do you know people who are trying to do this with God? Just like, well, I'm going to give it another try. I've got to clean myself up, but now I'm going to go for it. I think this last, last week I got 12 feet. Uh, last week I got 12 feet. Listen. Jesus jumped the gap for you. Open your Bibles to Romans 10. Romans 10. We're going to be done in like two minutes. Paul did not get to talk during this uh, entire time. Let's give him a chance to say his thing. This is Romans 10. Let's start in verse 2. Paul is taught, okay, let's start in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, not knowing Um, Romans 3 says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known to us to which the law and prophets testify. It's a righteousness of God apart from the law to which the law and prophets testify. Not knowing Jesus has made this jump. Ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. Putting on the number, registering for the race. 
attempting to follow the law of Moses. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Really simple application today, everybody. Just look in verse 3. Do not be ignorant of the righteousness of God. Recognize the righteousness of Christ. Recognize this leap that Jesus made a lot longer than, than 29 feet 11 inches. The leap that Christ made on your behalf on the cross. Recognize it. Don't seek to establish your own righteousness. Don't try to show God what you're made of. Or try to, you know, I'm going to ignore God's race and, and his plan and I'm going to make my own. Do not try to establish your own righteousness. But submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because this is the fun part, okay? So, like, what? So then do we just get to live however we want? Because Jesus made the jump and now I don't have to jump. So I guess, like, who cares? I'm just going to go live whatever I want. No, not at all. Like, the funnest thing on earth is to bring your kids over to a long jump pit. You know how fun that is? Bring a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and off they go. That is a great afternoon. But now, the law, following God, now that the, you've, you've won the race, now that Christ has done that for you, the fun of jumping is thrilling. The joy that we have as dearly um, brothers, as dearly beloved children, the imitators of God, as his kids, Go have some fun. Go jump. But you don't have to jump to win. Christ has done it for you. Christ has done it for us. Let's pray. Were we in our own strength to confide, our battle would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And Jesus, you have won the battle. And it is our privilege and joy to unite ourselves to you, to know that all of your goodness and all of your benefits can be given to us because we are a part of you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you for the opportunity we have to stop striving after that and to, to quit, to drop out of the race, to take the, the competitor's um, number off of our chest and to stop pursuing you in order to establish a righteousness of our own, but to recognize yours. I thank you for the joy that we have in following you, in imitating you and trying to be like you, but not to become your kids, but because we are your kids. Help us to follow you and live for you today, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.